Good evening. My name is Vivian Catfield, and this is Haunted Muse, a podcast that showcases my writing work in the horror, paranormal, supernatural, and southern gothic genres, as well as the folklore and history that inspired it. This is episode 49 of Haunted Muse, and the 11th episode of my second novel. It is set in 1858 and written in epistolary format. So, here we go. The Wolf You Feed from the Journal of Frontier School Teacher May Ulrich, August 7, 1858. By tomorrow night, we will have completed the most arduous part of our journey. According to both Brandy and Nasha, we will arrive at Bent's Fort by supper time. Although I am sure every crevice of my body is filled with hot dust from somewhere, and I will be gladder than ever in my life to take a proper bath, I cannot help but note that the journey has not been as difficult as some that I've read about. We haven't even had any substantial rain, yet that could simply be because we've timed it just right. There isn't ever much rain on the prairies in August. Nevertheless, here during my final night, I hope, of sleeping in a wagon for a while, I've been presented with one more mystery to solve. That being, of course, the mystery of the origins and nature of one just Cotter, about whom both Nasha and Brandy have told me different accounts at intervals today. However, I am comforted by the fact that, unlike some of the other mysteries that this trip has brought to my attention, at least this one purports to have an end. I am highly likely to meet this Mr. Cotter person at some point in time shortly after we reach town. That is one of the few details that Brandy and Nasha seem to agree on. Cotter is the sort of man who seems to be everywhere, all of the time. I'll begin with Nasha's account first, since it's the more bizarre of the pair. Several years ago, while on one of her trading trips heading north out of Bent's Fort along the old Ute Trail, Nasha passed through an area of curious red rock formations near Manitou Springs. She said that we'd pass it again on the way to Auraria, and that I would recognize the red rocks immediately on sight. They're sacred to the Utes, Nasha explained, much as the wolf is sacred to the Pawnee, for it is from those red rocks that the Utes came, and it is like those rocks that they will stand forever, as if they are mountains. When I replied that I looked forward to seeing them, but was unsure I'd know what to look for, since I'd heard the desert parts of Colorado were filled with red rock formations, her reply was, How do white people know a church is a church? You'll know them when you see them, if your eyes are open at all. It's always easy to know when one is on sacred ground. Returning to her story, though, when Nasha came upon those great red rocks, she saw two wolves. One was passing in, and the other out of a cave among the rocks. As she stopped to watch them, it was as if they were in conversation with one another. It being late fall and already chilly, Nasha was wearing her wolf headdress, and she approached the wolves, who made no effort either to attack or flee, but instead carried on as if she were just another wolf whom they knew passing by. Looking into the crevice in the rocks from whence the wolves came and went, she saw many other wolves huddled up inside, sleeping in one huge pile. In the middle of this wolf pile was a man, and he was naked. 
not wanting to scare all of the wolves at once, Nasha herself made whimpering sounds, like those a lonely pup would make to wake them. As the wolves stirred and stretched their way out of lazy slumber, the man moved as one of them. Stretching out his arms long in front of him, he pulled back into a crouching position, as a wolf does, enjoying the extended stretch of his muscles. But when he saw her, the man jumped straight up, banging his head on the ceiling of the cave, and rolled over to the sidewall, where he'd stowed his clothes. Struggling with his back to her to put them on, Nasha stepped away from the entry to give him some privacy and stood waiting for him to emerge. "'Weren't you scared?' I asked. "'What if he were some kind of crazy person? He could have attacked you.' At this, Nasha rolled her eyes. "'Not very many men are dangerous when they're both naked and unarmed.' "'True,' I thought, as she continued on. Once the man was dressed in clothes that likely once had been denim trousers and a simple white button-down shirt, albeit both were now dyed, red with dust and ripped out at the seams in every direction, he came out and spoke to Nasha. He told her that he had been part of a group of prospectors traveling west from Georgia. However, when it became apparent from his coughing up blood that he had tuberculosis, thought to be in remission when they'd left, it had returned, and he was getting worse. He'd been abandoned there by the side of the road to die. By that point, he was so weak from fever and thirst, he could not even rise to walk for help or search for food. So he crawled over to the cave, seeking shelter from the wind, and fell fast asleep. Carter explained to Nasha that during his slumber, he had the most incredible dreams. In them, he fantasized that he was running much faster than he normally ran, and surrounding him on every side were a pack of wolves. Together they bounded across an open prairie, wheeling in unison like birds on the wind. Wherever one went, the other followed. It was the greatest freedom I've ever known, Cotter had said. When he awoke, it was nighttime, and he found himself again surrounded by wolves, dozens of them, only this time they were real. Yet he was strangely unafraid in their presence. Carter reached out to touch one, just to be sure, and his caress was met by a thick coat of soft, coarse fur. Blinking into awareness and disbelief, he glanced around the interior of the small cave. A few of the younger wolves had carried apples there, from somewhere to gnaw on, and one of them, seeing him awake, rolled it over to him playfully. Ravenously hungry, Carter ate the apple, dust and all. Sent, seeing this signal of hunger, the younger wolves rolled their apples to him as well, and by the time he'd eaten three or four of them, Cotter felt well enough to sit upright. That was when he noticed it. His chest no longer felt tight. As he rose cautiously to his feet, he didn't erupt into a fit of coughing. Glancing down at his body, which was naked as when Nasha found him, Cotter could see that not only had his old musculature returned from where the tuber had wasted it away, but his muscles were twice the size they had been before. Just to be certain, he forced a cough but felt no pain and saw no blood. Something had cured him from the tuberculosis during his sleep. Carter asked Nasha what day it was, and she surprised him by saying that it was early November. Claiming he had been abandoned in May, he had no recollection of how he had spent the intervening months other than the fact that, since his miraculous recovery, he felt little desire to rejoin the company of men, but preferred instead to live among wolves. 
during the days, he knew that he slept, but at night. Carter had continued to have more and more elaborate dreams of running amongst the pack. Sensing that his grip on sanity was tenuous, and also that other more spiritual factors might be at work, Nasha eventually persuaded Carter to leave the cave and follow her on to Manitou Springs. At first, he was reluctant, but she smiled as she recalled how her wolf headdress won him over, and he agreed to leave with her. Along the route, Carter became increasingly talkative, as if speaking with another person revived his memory of having once been fully human. And from what he spoke of, Nasha said definitively, I knew that what I found was a wolf man, a protector of the people, just like the old Pawnee believed would come for us to save us from the whites. It was said that the wolf man would appear just before a great battle and that we should pay him heed because his word was the word of the wolf. And two, that we should be cautious because when the wolf man comes, the white man and his tricks are soon to follow. And that turned out to be true, didn't it? I pressed further. Because Carter wasn't abandoned and left forever, was he? Green Russell came back. That's the man who's now struck gold in Auraria. For that, you'll have to ask Miss Stockbridge, Nasha replied curtly. I do not trouble myself with the business of white men and the burden of their history, except where it concerns my own. Nor am I concerned with their money. The parts of life that I'm interested in trade in no currency. Their values are ancient and taken on faith. Nasha seemed settled on cutting me off here as usual, having had the last word, but I would have none of it. If you've no concern for white men's money, then why are you a traitor in furs? Nasha's gray eyes flashed coldly at me. My only concern with their money is to see them parted from it. I do not care for it, but I know they care for it a great deal. They would do anything for it. Me? I give all of it away that I do not need to the Indians of my village and others. They need it more. The roots of their family trees have been broken and twisted beyond recognition. Look at me, she said. A half-Pawnee woman married to a Navajo man? A plains runner and a cliff sitter? It's not a natural pairing. We're opposites, thrown together by necessity of survival. That is what the white man does. He takes and he takes, and so I take it back from him and give it away to those whom he's taken it from. Like Robin Hood, then, I said. She smiled, a wicked smile. Not quite. From what I understand, this Robin Hood of yours desired only to take money. But I, when I can, I take back what is truly ours. Life itself. Having at last gotten the final word as she desired, Nasha turned away. Without saying it again, I knew what her back to me meant. Go to the white woman for the rest. So, I did. Carter? Brandy replied, trying to wipe a smudge of charcoal from the fire off her face, but only succeeding in smearing it down her sleeve. Where did he come from? Hell, I've already told you all I know. There are tons of stories. 
If you've spoken to Nasha, you've probably gotten the most entertaining one. That he's a wolf man come to save the Indians, filled with a natural spirit for native vengeance or some such. Brandy stabbed at the fire, which was struggling to heat up under the frying pan rack as she continued. From what I know of him, he's a very decent sort of fellow. A traitor, too, but a different sort than Nasha. She'll shaft any white man she gets near any chance she gets. She always has the best furs because she's not afraid to go out and get them directly from the Indians firsthand, so they keep trading with her. Carter is a bit different, but also successful in his own way. He's more of what you might call a mediator. He tries to make sure that everyone stays on good relations with one another and takes a smaller cut from both sides to handle the negotiations. He's got a knack for it, that's sure. I would say that it's from being half Indian and half white, but then that wouldn't explain why he's so much easier to deal with than Nasha. Perhaps it's because his Indian half is Cherokee. They seem to have been able to get along with us, she gestured between herself and me to indicate our whiteness, better than most. Or maybe it's because he's Southern, and he's used to being treated like a second-class citizen, if they aren't part of some plantation owner's rich family. Search me, who knows? She flipped the metal poker in a circle to cool it off before laying it down in the grass. The only thing I do know about Carter for sure is that he's the only even remotely white man I've ever met who has never shown any interest in my girls. Drinks plenty when he comes in, and he'll flirt with them, but no put away. He could be funny, maybe. She wavered her hand back and forth. He kind of looks it. You'll know what I mean when you see his face. Almost pretty, rather than handsome. And he might have been an actor or some such at some time, because I hear him talking about plays to anyone he thinks will listen when he gets a snootful. You know, what they say about show people. Brandy raised an eyebrow to make sure that I understood her insinuation. So, but a spiritual being? Uh, my guess is no on that one. But a decent fellow who gives Indians and whites he trades with a fair deal and hasn't ever caused me any trouble, even when I've had to set him on the street drunk to close up? Yeah, I can attest to that part. Here again, I had to press to see if I could get one more bit of information. One more thing, though, about his name. You know that's from a play, right? Macbeth. Do you think he cribbed it from there? That it isn't his real name? I don't have the foggiest clue, Brandy replied, pulling the last slices of bacon out of their wrapping and smiling at herself as she laid them out across the pan for having kept our nightly rations perfectly portioned. But that's exactly the kind of question I'm sure he'd love to answer, if you'll get him a little drunk first, of course. Like I said, he'll talk your ear off about the theater once he's about three sheets to the wind. Till then, he's quiet as a mouse. Brandy prodded at the bacon with a wooden fork and then pointed at me with it. I would point him out to you when we get to Bent's, but I'm sure you'll know him when you see him. Tall, rangy fella. Arms kind of too long for his body, but really muscular, like a boxer. He's got odd eyes, too. Wrong color for an Indian, but the Indian in him shows strong in the rest of his face. He's handsome, 
but unusually so. How do you know he'll be there? Carter, Brandy said, looking away from me, her attention once again trained to the bacon. Carter's like fate. He's always turning up where you least expect him to be. August 8th, 1858. Wouldn't you know that we've ridden hundreds of miles for weeks without seeing nary a drop of rain, yet the moment we pull up in town and start to unload the wagon, it pours. Brandy wants to stay a few days here at Bent's Fort to see if she can drum up a little excitement for the improvements she's making at her place. So, we each took our clothes trunks off the wagon and had them hauled upstairs to our rooms in the hotel. Nary a porter to be found in this deluge, so we had to struggle and sweat it up to the second floor. By the time we'd done with carrying our trunks, I was completely soaked to the bone. Nasha doesn't travel with a trunk, strangely. She keeps all of her things in multiple soft bags made of waterproof canvas, which, after this fiasco, I think might be wise. Regardless, as soon as she'd gotten in, bathed, and changed, Brandy was out again, working her way through the crowds. Naturally, she left Penny with me, which, really, I don't mind at all. She's a bright girl, and we get along well. Strangely, we didn't spend as much quality time together on the trip over as I'd hoped, since Penny tends to be quieter around her mother. Perhaps it's, as my mother Marie once said, about being around my grandpierre and his old men friends. There are some people who take up all the air in the room. Ironic to think about it in this situation, though, considering that the air in question was the entire open prairie. When Penny and I had refreshed ourselves, we went out in search of dinner. Finding what looked to be a decent restaurant only a short walk from our hotel, we went in and ordered up some tamales, rice, and beans. The clientele was mixed. Equal parts traders, Indians, and Mexicans. Nothing out of the ordinary. Until I noticed a group of somewhat well-to-do white folks who seemed to have staked their claim on several tables of real estate at the north end of the bar. One woman in the center of the group, dressed in bloomers, seemed to be holding court over them all, with the rest of the party milling about, laughing at her every quip, so I asked the waitress who she was. Oh, that's Miss Julia Holmes, the waitress exclaimed, growing wide-eyed at the surprise of someone not recognizing a local celebrity. She's the lady who just came down from climbing Pike's Peak, first one. You just missed that newspaper fella. She told him the whole story. Maybe she'll tell it to you again if you go over there and ask her nice. She's real friendly. I needn't have worried that I'd miss out on hearing about Miss Holmes's tale, for it was told and retold at least half a dozen times as different groups of people went in and out of the restaurant congratulating her. Apparently, Miss Holmes was also a semi-newlywed, since she and her husband James had only married the year before. Penny was enthralled in the tale on the first and second cycles, but... By the third, she was batting her eyes sleepily. I walked her back over to our hotel and tucked her in. We chatted for a few minutes about this and that. Then she was out like a light. Still wide awake myself, I went back over to the restaurant and took a seat at the corner of the bar. I've always liked sitting at the corner because it gives me the opportunity to see the entire room and to speak, or refuse to speak, to just about anyone. Since it was a Sunday night, most everyone had already eaten and left. The bar was empty, save for one tall, thin man, sitting with his hat pulled far down over his eyes. 
He was leaning against the wall by his left shoulder and seemed almost drunk enough to fall asleep sitting there, so I paid him no further mind. By this time, the conversation among the Holmes party had changed to the more sobering subject of emancipation. It became clear to me immediately that Holmes and her husband were abolitionists, but as the drinks kept coming and the conversation got louder, I could also tell that a different group, sitting at the corner table opposite the Holmes party, was beginning to get irritated. Their conversation became gradually louder, too, only their side of the argument was in favor of maintaining slavery. From their accents, it was easy to discern that they were Southern, so their viewpoints were of no surprise. Economic self-interest primarily, I thought, was their motivation. The powers who control the factors of production rarely want to yield to paying workers more, or even at all, if they don't have to. Holmes's party steadily became aware of the increase in volume from the conversation across the room. I saw Julia lean over to her husband and whisper something, to which he shook his head vigorously. All of a sudden, she stood up. Her husband grabbed her by the wrist and tugged at her, trying to get her to sit down, but she shook off his grasp. Striding around the table, she addressed the party of men. "'Gentlemen, we can hear you from across the room. Why not come over, and we'll have a lively debate amongst our two groups. You seem to be primed for it, and I am more than game. I think that the merit of our side can hold its own.' Well, after that, poof, you could have heard a pin drop. After a collective, sharp intake of breath pulled all the air out of the room— no one from either party said a word for several tense moments. Then, hot and sweet behind my ear, came the soft, whiskey-soaked whisper of the thin man to my right. Ma'am, you'd better slide over here closer to me. Things about to get ugly. As I turned to face him, I had just about enough time to glimpse the grizzled outline of his jaw, which was so sharp it looked as if it could cut glass. Then I heard a crash of glasses behind me. Get down, the man whispered tersely. The next thing I knew, his long, muscular arm was around my shoulders and he was pushing me under the bar. He hovered over me, covering my head and upper back with his own body. I could feel his warm breath over the small of my back and felt his heart beat fast through the fabric of my dress. Moments later, I heard two women shriek as a rain of beer mugs and shot glasses came flying across the room like some sort of crazy indoor hailstorm. Miss Holmes ran back over to her side of the room, and I slid down with my back against the underside of the bar. I could see her do the same under the table where she and her friend sat. The owner of the bar, a fat Indian man in denims and a white shirt, began swearing in a mixture of English and his native language, which, from what little I knew of it, sounded like Navajo. The men at the other end of the table laughed at, laughed at him, which I took as a sign that the onslaught was over, so I peered around the corner of the bar. Imagine my surprise when I saw Brandy under the southern men's table, doing exactly the same thing that I was. Our eyes caught for a second, and she gave me one little head shake side to side. For whatever she thought I might be thinking, her answer was definitely no. The Navajo bar owner was attempting to get the Southerners to leave peacefully, but they were having none of it, especially after Mr. Holmes stepped up to defend his wife's request. 
I don't give a damn about what that big mouth Yankee woman over yonder has to say about nothing, the man in the green jacket, who appeared to be the leader of the group, shouted, his words slurred with drunkenness. And I don't care to hear nothing from no cone fenders tonight, especially if she's some kind of mountain climber. If you is doing your duty, young fella, she'd be climbing off you and her mouth be so full of something else. The green-jacketed man gestured rudely to punctuate this comment, and Mr. Holmes lunged for him, fist drawn. The heavy-set Navajo barman wedged his way between the two of them, arms raised, trying to maintain distance. The man in the green jacket reached back under his coat, and Holmes froze in mid-swing, his eyes fixed on the weapon. Quick as a flash, the thin man, who had pushed me to safety under the bar, darted around its edge and passed Holmes. With a smack, he hit the green man's outstretched arm, and the pistol went flying into the air. Falling to the ground, the pistol discharged and shot into the ceiling. The thin man wrapped his strong fingers around the hand of the man in the green jacket and squeezed. Even from across the room, I heard the bones in his hand pop and break under the pressure. He let out a roar of pain and fury, jerking his hand away, and the thin man let him go. "'God damn you, Carter! You done broke my hand!' The original argument forgotten, the man in the green jacket cradled his crushed hand in the crook of his other arm, and his face, already red with drink, turned purple with rage. Calm as a midnight pond, Cotter replied, Not that much. Maybe just a couple little bones. He's about to get in worse trouble. Pulling a gun on a fellow like that? Pooh! He gestured toward the door. It ain't becoming of a man of your stature to be acting like some kind of white trash, picking fights with women that way, neither. Now, just go on back to your room, get straightened up for a while. Ain't no harm been done yet that can't be fixed, sure enough. The man in the green jacket stood sulkily for a few seconds. Then, Brandy crawled out from under the table and tiptoed over, whispering something into his ear. He grimaced, then nodded, and she led him out by his good arm. The rest of the group followed, with several taking time to spit wads of tobacco onto the floor, along with insults partially under their breath that were still meant to be heard. Nigger lovers and other, ugh, hateful things. I was glad to see them go, but ashamed that Brandy had gone with them, without offering me so much as a backward glance. Mr. Holmes and the Navajo barman thanked Cotter profusely, as Holmes and their party invited me over to sit at their table, Carter sat down with us. "'I take it, sir, madam,' Julia said to us, once we'd all settled in and somewhat recovered, "'that the two of you are sympathizers with the cause of abolition.' I replied that I was, for I am, even though I hate to say I've never done that much for it, not much opportunity to. Where I'm from in Maine, there simply weren't any Africans, enslaved or free.' Plus, I'd never seen an enslaved black person until I was in college and took my first trip down the coast to the Carolinas. Even then, their plight, sad to say, hadn't registered very strongly with me. The ones whom I'd seen were all waiters and domestic servants in the restaurants where I dined and hotels where I'd stayed. They were all well-groomed and attired in the style of every other servant whom I'd ever met. So maybe that's why. I never really thought much about their situations at the time. Still, like every other person of care and feeling in America, I had since read Uncle Tom's Cabin and the terrible incident that I'd witnessed with the mother and child who were killed by the slave catchers in Cincinnati 
haunted me, even if I didn't know what to do about it. So, yes, I felt that I was speaking honestly when I said that I was a supporter of abolition, albeit an inert and shamefully ineffectual one. No, I reckon I am, replied Carter. My daddy was Cherokee, so we've done lost all the battles there is to fight with fellas of that kind. Sad to say, I know that sorry old dog. His name's William Russell. People call him Green Russell, which fits him, considering he's a real snake in the grass. He's my uncle on my mama's side. Mean as a snake, too, and twice as quick to snap. But he's smart. Pretty rich, too. Sad to say, he's about to get even richer soon with that new gold mine of his. That'll only make him more ornery. Here, Carter paused in his explanation and stared at a knot hole in the pine floor, thinking. Nah, I... Don't reckon I'm for anybody's cause except my own at this point in life. Can't stand to watch decent people get talked down to like that, though, and y'all seem to be decent people. It's not that I don't care about the black man or what he goes through. I do. I just don't see how much good it's going to do to make him free when he keeps on living in a place that hates him so much. He'd have to leave to have any kind of life. And most of them ain't got a pot to piss in or a window to throw it out of to make that happen. Their masters keep them that way, out of cash and beat down, feeling like they don't amount to much. Keeps them from running away. But, you know, I figure someday they'll find a way to get out of it, if they're strong enough. Either that or they'll die like the Indians. White people been doing the same thing for us longer than there have been black slaves in America. The difference is... Don't nobody care about us Indians at all. Not now, and probably not ever. So we got to take care of ourselves and our own business. If and you want to take over them slaves, though, go right ahead. It's a free country, and somebody needs to do it. They just ain't none of my concern. He tipped his hat to the Holmes party in farewell, and then again to the Navajo barman on his way out as he handed him a few silver coins. Pointing up to the hole in the roof where the bullet had gone through, he said, Nah, she ain't gonna be happy when she sees that, is she? Make sure you tell her. That weren't my fault. The fat Navajo barman managed a snort that was almost a laugh, as I realized he was Nasha's husband, Gad. Nasha, whom I hadn't seen since we'd come into town. Where was she? I wondered. You like to walk in the evening? Carter asked, catching me off guard as I pondered Nasha's whereabouts. I replied affirmatively, Good. I'll be out there walking, then. Just come out whenever you're done with, uh... He gestured toward Holmes's party, as he staggered out the door, bumping into the door jam as he went. What an oddly interesting fellow, said Miss Holmes, as the barman, or Nasha's husband Gad, as I knew him now, brought out the final round for last call. Setting it down on the table, Gad announced it was on the house and took one himself. We toasted Julia's success a final time before parting ways. I wish I'd had the courage to ask for her address so that we could keep in touch, but I've always been terrible at that sort of thing. Who knows how many people have slipped in and out of my life anonymously, simply because I'm not the sort of person to trouble them by asking for a second meeting. I had scarcely stepped off the boardwalk to cross the dusty street to my hotel when Carter 
appeared by my side. And where did you come from? I asked playfully, pinching at his sleeve. There, he pointed up as high as he could into the clear star-filled sky. Mm-hmm, I replied. I could tell that he was drunk, darker than he had seemed at the bar. But, having grown up in a bar and seen every possible type of man in every possible type of drunken mood, I could tell that Carter was a happy drunk, at least in this moment. Were you waiting for me to come and walk with you? Mm-hmm, he hummed, mocking me, his green eyes dancing. Brandy was right. Carter's eyes were truly remarkable. Are we staying in the same hotel? Nah, he grunted, shaking his head vigorously from side to side. The drinks must have hit him all at once when he stood up, I thought. Or perhaps he's gotten another snoot full from a flask he carried or something. He was staggering now. Would you like to sit down? I gestured to a bench nearby. Nah, he gurgled again mimicking me by casting his arm in a wide arc to indicate the rolling hills in the darkness beyond the edge of town. I'm okay. I stay out there with the stars. I see, I said, in a tone that I normally reserved for children. Well, thank you for walking me across the street. This is my hotel. I'll leave you here, okay? Okay, he said, grinning sleepily. Tomorrow, then. He paused and tilted his head to the side, wrapping his long arm around one of the posts supporting the balcony of the hotel's second floor. He swung around it like a little boy. Then, looking me square in the eye as he spoke, his accent changed from the slurred southern drawl I had heard all evenings through a shock shockingly crisp English accent. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time and all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, and then is heard no more. Automatically, I capped his lines, matching his assumed accent. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. That's from Macbeth, I said remembering what Brandy had said during our last night on the trail. But you're no idiot. I know, he replied, a little too loudly, before shushing himself back in his natural voice. I'm Calder, he slurred, pointing to himself and spinning around the pole again. Just Calder. That's all I am. Well, that's plenty, I said, smiling at his childish self-identification and mimicking his hesitation. I'm May, 
all rich. That's all I am. That's more than enough, said Calder, spinning around the pole one final time as he stepped out into the street. Tomorrow? Tomorrow. As Calder stumbled away, I wondered if he really was camping outside of town. And if so, why? He didn't look as if he were too poor to afford a room. His clothes were well made, if worn and dusty, and he paid for his drinks immediately, rather than charging a tab, which I knew was the habit of most broke men. But then, this Calder was nothing like any man I'd ever met, especially when he was drunk. Any other man would have tried to take advantage of the situation of having saved me, at the very least, from taking a beer mug to the face to try to force a kiss or to push to be invited up to my room. Cotter had done neither. He had recited Shakespeare like it was some sort of out-of-body experience and then walked away randomly into the night. Now that I've met this unusual fellow at last, he remains even more of a mystery. What am I to make of him? I guess I will find out tomorrow. This is the end of May Ulrich's August 8, 1858 journal entry. Be sure to tune in next week for the next episode of The Wolf You Feed here on the Haunted Muse podcast. Until that time, this is Vivian Catfield reminding you to remain ever watchful because you never can tell someone or something somewhere out there just might be watching you. <laughs>